Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Brittany Corey. Brittany is a Paralympic silver medalist in snowboarding, a nurse and advocate for women in sports. She's currently training for her second Paralympic Games next year. So Brittany, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. And I wanted to start with your love of snowboarding and something that you said really resonated with me. And that was that snowboarding gives you this sense of quiet and peace that you can't seem to find anywhere else. And throughout your life, it's been an outlet that's helped you navigate emotional ups and downs, pain and security. And I'd love to hear from your perspective why you think that is. Yeah, that's a great question. So I had a pretty rough childhood. My mom was not very supportive. She was very anti-female. So I got told a lot, like, girls don't girls don't go to college. Girls don't travel. Girls don't do this. She, my mom told me at a young age she never wanted girls. She only wanted boys. Um, my mother tried to kill herself while she was pregnant with me. And she never had any problem, like, sharing, like, how almost like a distaste she had for females. And so I always felt inadequate or that, you know, I was just searching for her validation or love and I never got it. And so I always felt less than and I always felt insecure and had horrible self-esteem. And when I put a snowboard on, that kind of all faded into the background. And me being, I don't know if it's because it's an extreme sport or the fact that I was in the mountains, I was able to just focus on snowboarding and it was, I didn't have all of that background noise of I'm not enough. I'm not wanted. Uh, you know, I could totally disappear from the world and I felt like nobody could care. But when I was on a snowboard, I had a sense of purpose. Like in high school, I had a girl come up to me and she's like, oh, you're the girl that snowboards with all the guys. And like that validated me so much that it was almost, it's like an addiction for me just that feeling of just a blank slate when I'm in the mountains. It's crazy. I really resonated with that and certainly had a different childhood and, you know, different issues that I've dealt with and faced over the years, but have often found that there's nothing like getting on the ice, putting on music and moving, training, practicing that this sense of peace and escape from the turmoil of the outer world that I haven't been able to replicate anywhere else. And, you know, I haven't really heard anyone else kind of speak about it in in such an articulate and specific way as you have. And so I really, I thought that we should share that. Thank you. Yes, it's awesome. I mean, it's crazy what sport can do. You know, it goes beyond the boundaries of just something to do for people like me or you. It was an outlet, you know, it was a way where, like you said, you could put headphones in and just kind of zone out and be in your own world. And winter sports in particularly, it's really cool because snowboarding, you can go with family, you can go with friends, you can put your tunes on and just kind of be in your own little world. And I just, I just love that about skiing and snowboarding. I've never, I've never figure skated, but I imagine it's probably the same. Yeah, I think that sense of speed when you're going fast is the closest thing I've felt to to flying. And I think we live in a world where cognitively it's, you know, we're overloaded so much of the time. And so when we have this chance to get into our bodies, it's it's a very special time. And I think I didn't fully appreciate it when I competed because that was normal. You know, I would train all day, 
and compete. And being very physical was what you did. But since retiring and transitioning, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at a computer and thinking. And so I really miss being in my body. But I want to circle back and and ask you a little bit more about that love of snowboarding and ask you if you remember maybe the first time you, you stepped out onto the snow or that moment you decided to go for the first time, like how old you were, where you were, kind of what you remember. Yeah, I think I was about 14 or 15 maybe. And yeah, I went up to my local mountain, which is called Purgatory. And I, you know, put the snowboard on my feet. I, I skied a little bit. We weren't a really winter sports family. We did a lot, you know, we did soccer, softball, volleyball, stuff like that. We never did winter. And yeah, I just remember, I mean, it was scary because learning how to snowboard, it's a very hard sport. It's hard on your bum. It's hard on your wrists. It's hard, you know, it's hard when you slam into the snow. But I mean, from that first day, I was hooked. I just, I wanted to get more and wanted to get more just to be out there. And I think for me, just being out in nature too, just getting to experience that, you know, solitude place where I could just kind of just be myself and just be in nature. And, you know, snowboarding scary. And that's, I think, where my love for adrenaline kind of picked up too, because, you know, you're right on the edge of if you make the wrong move, there's a huge consequence, which is physical pain. And so that physical pain kind of was masking my emotional pain. And so it's, it's kind of a weird relationship that I have with that. So two things you said sparked my interest. And one is this relationship with adrenaline, seeking adre- adrenaline. And I used to be a total adrenaline junkie when I was much younger and as I've gotten older, I've gotten more cautious. And I'm curious if that has evolved for you with time, with more life experience, maybe any hard falls or injuries. The The segue or parallel there is is fear, right? In this kind of necessity to have a lack of fear, to, to push your body to the limits at that kind of speed in nature, dealing with conditions that are different every time. And that's something kind of unique to the snow and and different than other sports. Yeah. So on the fear aspect, I'm kind of atypical. I actually, I like even at the games, I always say, you know, there's a level of fear or stupidity is what I call it. (laughs) And then there's a level of skill. Like at the games, I didn't have the skill set to win a silver medal, but I had the stupidity that I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid if I went through bionetting. I wasn't thinking about the consequences. I wasn't thinking I was going to get injured. It was go as fast as I can from the top to the bottom. And so even now, I don't have that fear. I'm 34 years old, and I've never developed an increase in fear in any aspect or circumstance in my life. And so I think I'm kind of an atypical human being, but yeah, I I don't, when I'm on snow, I'm not thinking about getting hurt or injured or a consequence. I'm in the moment right then thinking about snowboarding. That's amazing. And it totally comes across watching videos of you snowboard and I think I have a little bit of envy because I had that complete lack of fear as a six-year-old. And when I skied, I would just go straight down the mountain, getting as much speed as I could, jumping off moguls. 
And now when I ski, I'm like, okay, I'll do the blues and <laughs> go a little slower. Um, so it's amazing that you've retained that, you know, into your 30s. And I'm sure that's what that makes you what such a great athlete. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that, you know, I've heard like at 25, like as women, like your prefrontal cortex is complete and it's grown in and you have that, I can't get injured because usually you have a family or something like that. So you're thinking about external circumstances. And like I said, I just, (laughs) my coach, if anything, is like, okay, we need you to slow down and to like be more cautious of what's going on. And like at the end of the year, we have like an athlete performance plan and mine's always like injury is always something I score really low on because I just don't have that recognition in my brain that this is dangerous and I should slow down a bit. It's like, no, how can I go faster or go bigger or, you know, whatever it is. So I'm kind of blessed in that area, but it gets me in trouble at the same time. It's a catch 22. Yeah. It seems like you've been able to harness it though in an incredible way to propel in your sport. And I guess I want to take this moment to move on to a little bit of your journey and how you became a Paralympian. And it's a little bit different than I think many of the other stories. And I found it very, very fascinating that you actually chose an amputation to have your leg amputated below the knee in 2011. And I'd love for you to share the backstory for those that aren't familiar. Yeah. So Yeah, going back to my initial injury. So I got hurt on Christmas Eve when I was 17. I had too big of boots on. I was snowboarding. I hit ice and it tried to pull my foot out of the boot. The size was an eight. I wear a size five boot now. And I was tomahawking, which is like head over feet and having a tug of war basically with the boot and external forces trying to pull my ankle out. And I knew something was wrong immediately but I just had my friend take me home and put me in my room so I didn't get in trouble. The next day was Christmas and I couldn't walk because my ankle was so bad. We did Christmas activities and then my parents, my mom, I think took me to my, to the ER. They said I was supposed to follow up with ortho and they gave me crutches. We never followed up with ortho and I just counted down on the calendar when I could start snowboarding again. And it happened to be in February and I started snowboarding immediately at the eight-week point, I actually moved to Durango, Colorado and started teaching snowboarding. And I taught from the time I was 18 until I was 21 until my foot, my ankle was so large, I could no longer physically get it into a snowboarding boot. And that's when I had my first surgery. And I had it at the beginning of the summer. By the end of the summer, they wanted to fuse my ankle, which meant no high-impact sports. And for me, that was a death sentence. And so I basically was like, not going to happen. I moved to Mammoth, California, got a job teaching there, got 110 days on snow, shaved the inner liner of my snowboarding boot out so my foot would fit in there and completely trashed my ankle. So I was about 22 and a half at this point. And I saw a doctor in Mammoth and he said he's seen people fall, climbers from considerable heights and their ankle joint didn't look near what mine did and that I needed to go see a foot and ankle trauma specialist. So I did that. I told the doctor they wanted to fuse it. And he's like, no, a fusion's for like a 70 year old that just wants to move their water on their grass. And I was like, awesome. We're on the same page. Like he was all about getting me back active and getting me back out on snow. Um, I had eight ankle surgeries 
from 22 and a half to 25 trying to fix my foot. So every three to six months, I was back in the operating room. I had the same pre-op nurses the whole time. But towards the end, I knew that there was no fixing my ankle. The only way in between surgeries I could walk around was on Skechers shape-up shoes because they had the rocker bottoms. And I didn't have to use my ankle joint. I could use that rocker motion of the shoe to walk around. And so I wore shoes all the time because I couldn't walk without that rocker. And so I started researching fusion in depth and I realized, you know, my greatest fear was going to be my reality if I chose to fuse my ankle. I would not be able to do the things that I loved and enjoyed. And so I started looking at amputation and I researched it in depth and I saw a guy on a downhill mountain bike with a prosthetic just sending it. And I was like, ah, that's what I want. Like, I want to be active. I'm so tired of being on crutches. And when I went to that appointment, it was May 7th of 2011. And I told my doctor, you know, he's like, Brittany, your foot is like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. He's like, I can't do anything else for you. We're going to have to fuse your ankle. And I was mad. I was like, no, you're not. I was like, I was here three years ago and you said a fusion was for a 70-year-old. Like, I bought you a house in Cabo from all these surgeries. I don't even get to use it. And now you're going to take my my mobility away from me? And we had a really good relationship. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to amputate it. I want to be active. I don't care if it's painful. I don't care if it hurts. I need to be able to walk around and to live the life that I want to live. And he told me if I saw a couple of other doctors that he would amputate. And those doctors would, weren't able to help me. One of them was a bone graft specialist. And he said he'd have to replace my whole tibial head and my whole talus, which is the joint that your tibia goes into. And he said at that point, it would be experimental because it's too much bone grafting. And then I saw a prosthetist who makes um, sockets and leg systems for people. And he's my still my prosthetist now. And so I had all those appointments and I amputated on June 29th. I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. I told my close family and a couple friends. I mean, I told my immediate family. I didn't even, I didn't tell grandparents. I didn't tell cousins, anybody. Because for me, amputation was my decision and it was my life. And I didn't want any negative external voices in my head when I was going to be on the surgical bed. You know, I knew I knew I wasn't going to get my foot back. And I didn't want people telling me that because it was my decision. And at the end of the day, if it was the worst decision of my life, it was mine. And that's something that I chose to do. And I didn't want to be like, man, I wish I would have listened to so-and-so who told me not to do this. And my family, they really struggled with my decision. Like when I told my sister I was going to amputate, she's like, if you go to your doctor, they're going to put you in a psych ward. If you go up there and say you want to amputate, she's like, there's no way they're going to take your foot off. And so I was kind of their cheerleader. You know, I'm like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be back doing what I want to do. And I went in with that mindset that whatever I had done before I amputated, I was going to be able to do after. I, ha- I was an amputee. I didn't know how, I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I knew that I was going to be able to do it. And if the main reason was to prove everybody wrong, then at least, you know, that was a driving and motivating force for me as well. I- I'm very stubborn. And if I set my mind to something, 
I'm going to achieve it. And so that kind of helped me, but I don't think it helped my family very much. I can only imagine, you know, what it's like to live with constant pain as an athlete. I've certainly had bouts months at a time, but, you know, never for years in a row. And while living with that pain is so debilitating, and now you're without that kind of pain. And, you know, is life everything you thought it would be on this side of the amputation? And perhaps when you were making that decision, what was the most difficult thing about it? Well, making the decision wasn't hard for me, which is weird because a lot of people are like, that must have been like the hardest thing you've ever had to deal with. But it was actually an easy, it was easy for me. I wanted to be active and I, like I say, you know, disabled, I hate that word, but my amputation has made me and allowed me to be re-abled. I was more disabled when I was on crutches for three years, you know, trying to navigate through life wasting my 20s away on a surgical on a surgical table instead of doing the things that I really wanted to do and so it just it just wasn't hard and I think like for me like like I said my childhood was less than optimal but a lot of the things that I had to overcome as a child kind of helped prepare me for that and helped me to be able to come out of it on the other side a better person like I've I say it all the time, like I lost my leg, but I gained my life. Like I'm a much better person on this side of the amputation than I was before. Because even when I was snowboarding in my teens, like I was, I had so much emotional pain that the physical pain of my ankle, it didn't bother me because it was masking. Like I couldn't deal with the emotional pain, but I could deal with that physical pain. You know, my ankle was huge. Like most people couldn't even walk around and I was going off 40 foot jumps every single day. But I I just, that it just didn't resonate with me that the physical pain. And on this side of amputation, I've done way more as a human than I ever thought possible before amputation. And like when I was a teenager, I had a mohawk. So I never, like people would stare at me because I was a feral wild kid, you know, And so the fact that people stare at me now, like it doesn't bother me. It bothers other people that are with me sometimes. And like my sisters had to really get used to it, but it never, it never bugged me. And like all tease with kids, you know, sometimes kids will be looking and their parent will try to jerk their arm out of the socket when they're staring. And it's like, no, let's have a conversation. Like it's a robot leg. And the kids are like, holy smoke, it's a robot leg, you know, but it's like, it's intriguing. And hopefully it's piquing the interest of these younger kids because they may be the next people to develop the newest, coolest, latest, and greatest thing in prosthetic technology because somebody who was different than them took the time to let them and show them their foot and kind of what it is and what I'm able to do. And so that was kind of a roundabout way to answer that. But yes, I'm a much better, better person. And my life has gone full circle. Before I was an amputee, all I wanted to do was be a pro snowboarder. I wanted to be the girl going off the jumps the same size as the guys. I want, I would have loved to have a coach. I didn't have the resources to do so. Like those are all things that I just yearned for and wanted so bad. And now since I've been on the team, I've gotten everything, not necessarily handed to me, but I'm, I've literally been able to live my life a second time since amputation. That's such a beautiful story of transition and perhaps most of all because of your attitude throughout it. You know, I think it's 
certainly difficult under any circumstance, but it's really just such a reminder of how you see things and what events in your life ultimately can give you um, and might be very different than what the rest of the world sees. And speaking of your blazing kind of full-out nature, I read that you decided to race only 12 days. Was it 12 days after your amputation or 12 days on snow? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So during my rehab I and after my amputation, I kind of shifted away from snowboarding because of how traumatic my amputation was for my family. And I decided to become a nurse. And so I was doing nursing prerequisites when Sochi came on TV and I watched the Paralympic snowboarding and I was like, I know I could do that. I'm like, I know that I know that I know that I could do that. At that time, I didn't have the resources. Like I didn't have a car. I had no way to get to the mountains. I couldn't afford to snowboard at that point in my life. But snowboarding was always in the back of my mind. And I have two nieces and a nephew. And like I said earlier, we weren't a winter family, but I really wanted them to love winter just as much as the other sports. And to be able to ski, my sister wouldn't let them snowboard because of what happened to me. But I just really wanted them to have that ability to get out into nature and to hoop and holler and have all the memories on snow. And so after I got like, the season before I graduated nursing school, so that would have been 2015, 16, I took my nieces and nephews up just for a couple days. And so the 12 days that I did have on snow was chasing down my nieces and nephew who were skiing. And so I started reaching out after I graduated nursing school because I told myself, I have to do one race. If I never do a race, I knew that I was going to live the rest of my life with regret. But if I did one race and I failed epically and was like terrible at it, at least I could have said that I tried it. And so I started reaching out and I ended up connecting with a guy who puts on Dutor, the adaptive event. And it happened to be on a Monday, he contacted me. He kind of talked to me. He's like, how are you on a snowboard? And I'm like, well, I've only been on snow for 12 days, but I've been able to keep up with kids. And so he's like trying to figure out if I could fit into this event. And so I guess my, my Facebook profile at that point was me on a downhill mountain bike gapping a jump. And so they figured if this girl can gap a jump on a downhill bike, maybe we should bring her up to Dutor and see how well she can snowboard. So I talked to him on Monday. I went up to Breckenridge on Wednesday. They evaluated my riding on Thursday, which would have been 13 days on snow. And then I raced on Friday, which was day 14 on snow. And I ended up finishing second to last. But that was the most celebrated second to last finish, I think, in sporting history because I wasn't last. And like, I was just so excited. I was on a park snowboard, which had no edges, was super tiny. I had all of my big baggy park gear on from 2008. I look like a big, huge red gorilla. And everybody's in like their race suits with their big, long race snowboards with sharp edges. And here I show up just loving life and having the best time. And I caught the attention of one of the coaches, his name is Kep. And he took some runs with me after the event and was talking to me about Paralympic snowboarding and what it entailed. And he said, if I came up to Crested Butte, he could kind of get me more integrated into that Paralympic sport. And the U.S. coaches were there and they were like, they talked to me and they're like, wait, how many days on snow? 
I was like, 14? And they're like, oh my gosh. They're like, we want to see you at more events. Like, holy smokes, only 14 days. And so that event turned into more and more. And I just, I mean, it was it was the coolest thing ever just because being a part of something as well as I had been an amputee for five years at that point and I had never met another amputee. And I showed up to Dutor and there was tons of people with limb differences or cerebral palsy and like just being able to hear their stories and being around other people that were similar to me. It was, it was an incredible moment. It was amazing. Like to see Brenna on a snowboard, you know, walking to the chairlift, she looks like she's, it's really weird because she's got two shocks and her whole, her whole body's kind of rocking back and forth. And then I see her on snow and she's just flying down the mountain. I mean, it was really, really cool. It was a very special moment in my life. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's such a beautiful story of your journey. And a couple of things popped into my mind. because the first I want to mention is the importance of community. And you said it was five years since your amputation and you hadn't met anyone that had a similar experience. And I think when we go through things that are difficult, whether it's of our own choosing or not, the importance of being able to see that experience reflected in others or talk about it. And it's, I think the talking is where so much of the healing happens and finding a shared identity with others that have had a similar experience. So I thought that was just so on point. And I've felt that many, many times in my life after going through difficult experiences. And then the other thing that really stuck out to me was you said you were in nursing school while watching the Sochi 2014 Winter Olympics and Paralympics. And you're like, I can do this. And and so the first part of what I'm curious about is you said that having this surgery, deciding to amputate, somehow led you to your career in nursing. And it's it's a second love for you. And I was wondering if you could fill in the backstory for us. Yes, it's two things that I love the most in life. So going through all of my amputations, um, like I said, I had I had eight ankle surgeries with Dr. Desai. And I had the same pre-op nurses every single time. Their names were Fran and JJ. And they would tell me all the crazy things I would say when I was on Versed, you know, talking about Flight of the Concords business socks and random songs I would sing. I said, you know, how hard it was for my family. I had to be their cheerleader and I had to tell them that it was going to be okay. January of 2011, I decided to go to school to be an EMT because I was living with a nurse and she had adopted a girl who had a stroke. And so how I would kind of pay my rent with her was I would help her take care of the girl who had the stroke. She worked in the ER. So basically I was just a body there in case something was to happen, I could call 911. And she sat me down and she's like, Brittany, you're not going to be able to snowboard anymore. You need to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Become a physical therapy assistant and, or something because you've been in therapy for years. Like you should know everything there is to know about physical therapy. But I thought that was going to be super boring and I'm like, no way. So I looked into EMS and I figured I could get an adrenaline rush like I could with snowboarding. And then once I could snowboard again, I could be ski patrol. And so then I could get to do, you know, two things that I love. And going back to Fran and JJ, um, when I went in to have my leg amputated, it was, ki- it was kind of a crazy experience. The anesthesiologist called me the day before my amputation, and he's like, hey, I normally don't call people before I do a surgery. He's like, but I noticed that you're 25 and you're choosing to amputate your leg. He's like, I need a little bit of clarification on why. 
And after I told him what was going on, he was okay with it. But Fran and JJ had no idea when I showed up on the schedule that morning that I was going to have my leg amputated. And at that point, I had told them that I wanted to be a flight for life paramedic. That was going to be the next thing I was going to do after I got my leg amputated. And when I was in the PACU, Fran and JJ arranged for the Flight for Life team to come and pick me up and take me from the PACU up to my room. I get goosebumps every time I think about this because that was the first time that somebody had told me in a roundabout kind of way that I could still do that. If I wanted to be a Flight for Life paramedic, I could do it. And it kind of shifted my focus away from EMS into nursing because at that moment I realized I could be somebody's friend or JJ. I could inspire somebody to do something they might not have thought they could do, or I could make somebody's day a, a real, I mean, anybody in the hospital is having a really bad day, but I could try to make it just a little bit better. And maybe when they leave the hospital, they could be like, wow, Brittany took really good care of me or my family because I, I knew what it was like to make a decision. You know, I knew what, it wasn't really life or limb, but I chose to have a limb taken off and I know how hard it was on my family. And so as a nurse, I kind of incorporate that into, into my everyday routine is, you know, I want to take care of my patient and their family and make their bad situation a little bit better. And when I was in the hospital recovering, one of my best friends at the time, she's like, when I decided to go back to school, she's like, well, why don't you just be the best student there is like get competitive with it. And so I did. And I was, you know, a straight A student through all of my prereqs. I was my nursing class president. I developed a study group for my nursing fellow students because some people were falling behind. And for me, if I was getting A's and number one in the class and they were failing out of nursing school, was I really a straight A student? And I was the that I was voted president. Was I really a good president? And so I took it upon myself to create a study group to help make sure that every single one of us that started nursing school finished together. And so, you know, it's like going back to life coming full circle. Like snowboarding is what caused me to become a nurse, and nursing is what allows me to snowboard. You know, nursing is what pays my bills and allows me to go travel and pay for training and boards and gear and all of that stuff. And so. Once again, you know, like the circumstances that you're in at that time, they can either shape you in one direction or another. And for me, I'm lucky enough that I'm stubborn enough to make to make it be something positive or to do something. If somebody says I can't do something, I love proving people wrong because I'm a firm believer that we're the only ones that can allow and set limitations on ourselves. And I, I think I learned that from my mom, you know, she was said all the things that girls couldn't do. And I've proved her wrong in every single thing that she said that I wasn't going to be able to do. And so like, that's a huge thing that I tell people, you know, don't let somebody else limit you. They might not be able to do it. They might not be able to be an amputee running hot laps on as a nurse for 12 hours, but that doesn't mean that I'm not able to, because I'm the only one that's allowed to set those limitations on myself and other people you know, should do the same. Don't let somebody else put their insecurities onto you. Brittany, thank you for sharing that. I think the way that you've navigated the difficulties and that journey is so inspiring and certainly a good reminder for those of us who kind of make excuses or have little pity parties here and there, just the power of attitude and the power of resilience and where that can take you. I think I needed to hear that today. So Thank you for sharing that. 
And and I want to move on a little bit further because something that's so interesting is you're a nurse. And so what does that mean? That means you're working on the front lines. You are seeing COVID, bad COVID cases daily. And you're doing this in the midst of trying to train for a second Paralympic Games. And can you take me back to the moment where I believe you were in the midst of competing overseas at a, at a World Cup and all of a sudden the whole pandemic blows up in the States, you're home days or weeks later, and this is your new normal? Yes, that, that was a crazy. So last year we were in Norway because that's where World Championships was supposed to be this year. I had just competed in dual bank slalom, which was a new event. And I was so tired. I went to sleep and I guess there was like an emergency team meeting. I missed it because I was completely out. So I woke up the next morning to chaos. Like people's bags were packed and like our physical therapist was leaving. And I'm like, what is going on? And at that moment was when the pandemic got huge. Norway was closing its borders within 48 hours. So we had to be out of Norway within two days, which happened to be Friday, March 13th. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, Friday the 13th. So they said we had to have our bags packed and we had to be out. And so I packed all my bags and I started looking at nursing jobs because, you know, I, nobody nobody had been in a pandemic before, but it was an opportunity for me to help out. So I got back to the States on March 13th and I got hired and started working on the on the acute internal medicine floor on March 31st. And so I was working, getting trained, and an email came in saying that they needed help in the COVID testing facilities. And so I immediately responded to the email saying that I'm, I'm willing to help out. And no hesitation, you know, but I think it's kind of my, like the non-fear, you know, like I was never really afraid of getting COVID. I was more afraid of getting it, not knowing and giving it to somebody else. And so when I applied to help out in the, in the tents, I wanted to give those nurses and aides and me medical assistants some respite who have been in it for so long. And so I, you know, put on my nursing shoes and, and I went to work. I, I was, at least as a nurse, I was given the opportunity to get my steps in. You know, I'm doing at least five miles per shift just in walking and just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So it's it's a very physically demanding job. And so I kind of saw it as cross training. You know, I was able to get out and walk at least five miles every time I was on a shift. And from the beginning of June until July 5th, I believe, I had worked 28 days out of 32 either in the COVID tents or on the floor. And I was here in Salt Lake and it's 100 degrees and you're in full PPE and everybody's, you know, everybody that's getting tested has this insane amount of anxiety because they've, you know, they've heard everything on the news and how people are passing away and there's these long-term effects. And so the anxiety was very high. And that was kind of getting pushed onto the staff as well, you know, kind of trying to care for people in a pandemic. It's tough. And so me being the personality that I am, I 
would get the jams on in the morning and we would just jam out in the tents. Like it was, you know, they called me DJ COVID because, you know, I was trying not to make light of the pandemic, but trying to take that anxiety down a little bit that, you know, we're still, we're still humans at the end of the day. We still have basic needs. And if we can make the environment a little less stressful or take down the anxiety just a little bit, then that may help that person that's in the car getting, you know, a very uncomfortable swab through their nose into the back of their throat. If they can, you know, see that we are humans, I think, I think it helped. And I think it helped my, my coworkers as well. Like I still communicate with all of them. I was out of the tents. They're coming closer to competition because we have to be tested negative before we could do any travel. So I kind of had to step away from that. But now that I'm vaccinated, I was, you know, I've done a couple couple shifts over the winter in the COVID tents, and now it's swapping to vaccination tents. And so hopefully I'll be a part of that as well. So like for me, it's kind of, it was a unique opportunity. I mean, you're, you're well aware of this, you know, it takes a village to send an athlete to the games. And this was my opportunity as an athlete to take care of my village and to take care of my community and those people that are there watching and cheering us on, you know, without that village, there is no competition. There is no Olympics. There is no Paralympics and human life is worth more than, more than anything, you know? And so I've been given, I see it as I've been given a great opportunity to give back and to help people out. And I mean, it was hard work. I had lots of, you know, I had a lot of skin breakdown on my amputated leg because that's a lot, that's a lot to be on on your feet in general. And then as an amputee, we sweat. And so I was getting so sweaty inside my socket. I almost had trench foot on the bottom of my nub, but I ended up, I have a really awesome doctor here in Salt Lake and he gave me Botox and that kills the sweat glands. And then I wasn't sweating as much and it made it so much better. But yeah, I kind of, I kind of viewed it as cross training. So nursing was my cardio and then I would come back and use my TRX strap and do exercises that I was able to do and like downhill mountain biking and cross country mountain biking is second to snowboarding. And so being in Utah, I was lucky enough that I was still able to get out and get on my bike and get out in nature. Nursing is cross training. I love the way that your lens of the world kind of colors it for you. And I, I think everyone's just smiling, listening to your story and incredibly impressed by you. And I, I have to say that I've noticed this theme of seeing beyond yourself. And I think that's rare for two reasons. One, you're still very much in the midst of competing. And two, as a solo athlete, I find that there's a lot of focus on the self and performance and what one needs to do to reach certain goals. And so I think it's incredibly rare. You're in the midst of saving lives. And I can only imagine how different this experience is training for Beijing for the 2022 Paralympic Games and and how different it must be for you than from your peers and, and fellow competitors. And I'm curious if you've talked at all about that with the snowboarding team, but I think that's something very special and unique to you. Yeah, and... I get a lot of respect just because I am a Paralympian and I'm a medalist. So there is that level of like respect, I guess you could say. But like as a nurse, it takes it to a whole different level. And I feel like being a nurse in the pandemic, I've gotten a lot more respect from my my fellow athletes. 
And for me, like, I'm very goal-oriented. I'm very competitive. And I'm also thinking about the next steps, like always. And for me, I want to build the sport. And I want to raise up the next generation that's hopefully going to take my spot on the team. Because for Paralympic snowboarding, we need more females. And so, like, that's been a huge focus of mine is, you know, trying to raise that next generation up. Nick Baumgartner, he's an Olympic border cross racer. I kind of have been following his mantra, which is, you know, I, I'm competing. I'm giving it everything I have. But if there's younger people that can come come up and take and earn my jersey, I would love to be a part of that. Even if it's training, if it's answering questions on Instagram when somebody who's never been on a snowboard reaches out or, you know, I have a girl that her name is Danae and she, I met her at an event that I volunteer at every year. And I'm like, let's get you going. Let's get you into this competition. Come train with us, you know? But for me, it's like that, that is success in itself. If you can be a positive part of somebody else's journey, especially as women, like we have such an ability to tear each other down. I mean, we can cut each other to the core, but we also have an ability to raise other women up like no other. I mean, being positive towards another woman, it just gives them a, like a different sense of purpose and belonging. And so as a veteran on the team, I've been given the opportunity to set the tone of what U.S. Paralympic snowboarding looks like or what world para snowboarding looks like. And for me, I want it to be a positive experience for everybody. You know, I want my competitors to be performing at their best when I'm in the gate next to them because that's real competition. Like I would never want somebody to be injured or hurt or their equipment not to be functioning right in the start because at the end of the day, did you really win that competition? Were you the best competitor? And so I guess I do have a different different perspective. But my life, like I didn't have a real connection with my mom. My sister is more like like my twin, my mom, and my sister all in one. But I've had so many people fill those gaps. Like Vicky, who was the nurse that I was living with, she was kind of like a grandma to me that I didn't have. And then I kept with a lady. Her name was Marie, and they ended up adopting me into their family when I was in my 20s. And so there's been a lot of people that have stepped in to fill the voids that I've had when it comes to having another human connection that I what I didn't have with my mom. And so I don't take those connections for granted. And if I can be that for somebody else, then, you know, that's ultimate success. Like my nieces and nephews, I want to be for them what I didn't have. I go to every single, try to go to every single sporting event they have. I try to be supportive. I try to teach them to chase their dream no matter what. You know, with my amputation, it's given me a platform to show them not to have bad self-esteem. I wear my prosthetic with pride when people, when their friends that, that don't know that I'm related to them are like, Oh my gosh, that lady only has one leg. They're, ha- they're proud. And they're like, yeah, that's my aunt, you know? And so I guess, you know, we're all human beings and we're here to raise each other up. And so even though I compete as a, a single sport at the end of the day, the, the relationships that I'm building along the way are just as important as any metal. My friendship with Brenna, like, she's a riot. I love every time I get to spend time with her because we have so much fun together. And when this journey is over, I know I'm going to look back on that and remember how much fun that we had together and we'll be friends forever. Danae, the girl that I'm helping out now, like, hopefully the same will be true for her. And when the next person comes up, 
Hopefully she'll be able to extend a hand and pull the next woman up to her level instead of trying to push other people down. I think the people whose lives that you touch are very lucky to have your influence and perspective and you have a lot of wisdom for your for your 34 years. And I know that this is a second games you're training for and you've taken on a more senior role and have this chance to imprint and really shape the the culture of of your team and and I'd love to know uh perhaps touching back on Pyeongchang kind of maybe the highlight of that experience for you and maybe now how you've changed as an athlete and a person and what your goals are uh going into your your second Paralympic games yeah like going into South Korea, it was a whirlwind because like I said, I was only 12 days on snow when I did my first competition. And when I made, I made the U S team on coach's discretion. So I didn't meet the requirements to be able to put on a red, white, and blue Jersey, but uh, Pat Holland, Graham Watanabe and Cody Brown, they saw something in me and in my writing and they decided to take a risk and to bring me on the team a girl who had been on snow maybe 30 days in one season as an amputee. And going fast-forwarding to to the Paralympics, they thought I had a chance in border cross because that's, you know, jumps and all of that stuff is what I'm familiar with. And I ended up going down in the first heat in the first turn. And I was devastated. Like, I was so devastated because I thought that would have been my opportunity to win a medal. And nobody thought I was going to win a medal in bank slalom because I had a struggled turning a snowboard. Like I, <laughs> I was the worst turner there was. And that's all bank slalom is. And I remember up at the start, Graham and Cody had been telling me the whole season, when you're on a snowboard and you're, and you're on a course, don't think about snowboarding. If you're thinking about it, you're too late. Let your body do what your body knows how to do and just let it ride. And Lane, who's my coach for my team here in Utah, he had 10 days with me to try to get me to turn and he helped get my gear all dialed. And I remember after the first run, it was a minute and six seconds and Ad put me in a third place position if I was to hold on to that. Like, so after the first run, I was like, I'm holding on to this bronze medal. Like no matter what happens, like I hope I can hold on to this. And I remember getting back up on the top and Graham and Cody were just ecstatic. They were hooping and hollering and high-fiving. And they told me, they're like, no matter where you finish today, you have accomplished everything and more than we thought you ever could do. So if you don't win a medal today, you have, like, this is the writing that we knew that you were capable of doing it and you were able to execute it. And so whatever the results end up after the next two runs, you need to go home knowing that you, you accomplished something amazing. And like, I want to cry when I think about it and I get goosebumps because when I was in the start gate for the second run, I was like, I'm holding on to this bronze. I knocked five seconds off. And then my third run, I knocked another second off. And that ended up landing me in a second place spot on a podium. And the sense of pride, not only just to represent my country, but that these coaches, they saw something in me that I didn't even know was possible. And to be able to be on a podium, I mean, I finished last in Bank Slalom Border Cross the year before the games. And I was sitting there second in the world. 
I mean, it was the, it was the coolest thing ever. And like my sister called me before the medal ceremony and she's like, oh my gosh, all of your dedication, all of your hard work, look at you, like, look at where you're at. And I mean, when I got to see my flag be raised on a pole, I, I realized in that moment that I wasn't just representing New Mexico where I was from or Colorado where I spent the majority of my adult life or Utah where I was training. I represented a whole country. And I had two Dutch flags on both sides of me and fourth place was Dutch as well. And so if I hadn't have performed, like I prevented a podium sweep and the U.S. (laughs) is the only one in Paralympic snowboarding that's had a podium sweep. And I mean, it was just, it was cool. But once again, that was somebody believing in me and taking a chance to bring me on a team. And that day, it was, it was my day. Oh, that's that's such a wonderful story. I'm so excited and I'm sure everyone else is to root for you and and watch you in games that are less than a year or close to a year away at this point. I want to end with two final questions and I'm always fascinated about identity and how it changes over time, especially for athletes who deal with early retirement. And then I think there's just an extra layer of complexity with Paralympians because there's a different journey and a different story and an identity shift in becoming a Paralympic athlete and what that means. So I'd love to ask you where you get your sense of identity these days and and perhaps how that has changed from your pre-Paralympic days. Yes, that's a great question. So like identity, I was lost when I was young and I was wild and all I wanted to do was be accepted. and now, like, I'm kind of atypical because I am a nurse and I do have a career outside of snowboarding. So my identity will always be in snowboarding, but I do have that nursing background to fall, to fall back on. And yeah, like, I, I just think my identity is more of like a mentor at this point. Like, I'm training hard. I'm working hard. Like, I'm going to be on a podium in China but at the same time, I can still go and help somebody else out. You know, like Danae, I keep talking about Danae because we were in Lake Tahoe this last weekend and she's an above the knee amputee and she's got, you know, a lot of stuff to overcome just mechanically with the system that she has. And, you know, we were training one day and she's like, the first feature was kind of like a park feature. And I'm like, all right, let's go over to the park and let's do it with low consequence where you have a lot of space and let's figure it out. And then you can come back to the course and transition it onto the course instead of, you know, trying to digest an elephant in one bite. Let's break it down a little bit. And during the last day on the competition, she just slayed it. Like she got over that feature so well. And that was, I mean, that was a cool moment to be, to see somebody else be successful was just as cool as if I was, in the start gate next to her and happened to finish in front of her. Like it, I mean, just to see her do that, it was incredible. And I ride with an able-bodied team and we have a lot of younger females on our team and it's kind it's cool to watch them grow and to love the sport because identity, you know, my identity isn't snowboarding and I love when people love it because I love it that much. And when I can share that love and passion with somebody else and see the twinkle in their eye and the people that don't want to take a day off, they want to ride every single day. It's like, that's me. You know, I can see, I can see my own reflection in 
the next generation. And it's really cool. That's, that's beautiful and so well put. And bringing me to my last question, question I ask all the guests, which is what would your Olympic or Paralympic moment in life be? And it doesn't have to be on the snow. It can just be some huge moment in your life that maybe time stood still and you'll always remember. Oh, that's hard. Like I have, I have a lot of those moments. Like I savored life for sure. I think my proudest point is, you know, I was the first person in my family to graduate college as a nurse and my oldest niece wants to be a nurse now. And so, and my middle niece wants to be a veterinarian. And so just to see them that like not, they don't want to be, I mean, they obviously would love to be an Olympian, but the snow part of it, they've seen how hard I've worked and how much dedication it's taken, but they've also seen how hard I've worked to become a nurse. And like, that's inspired them to want to pursue an education. And I, I just think that's, I think that's really cool to be like for them to want to better themselves at the age that they are. Cause I was 25 when I went to school, if I would have had guidance and been 17, granted my life would be a lot different, but like, that's a moment that stands still. I mean, and for me getting back on a snowboard, um, Mike Schultz, he's also on the U S team. He developed a foot. It's called a Versa foot and it's got a shock in it, like a bike. And once I got that foot and put a snowboard back on, I almost cried, um, I mean, probably a hundred times the first season I was on snow because I was able to put a snowboard on and I wasn't in pain. I was able to land a jump and I wasn't in pain. I was able to turn a snowboard and I wasn't in pain. Like I get teary when I think about it because like I never thought that I could love snowboarding more than I did when I was 22. And now I love snowboarding a thousand times more. And that to me is just, it's super cool. Oh, those are such beautiful moments, both of those. Thank you so much for sharing those. And I think this whole conversation has been such a good reminder of the importance of perspective and also that every journey is different and unique and each one can be incredibly beautiful and allow for its own evolution. And I too went to school at a non-traditional age at 26 and really enjoyed the experience after being homeschooled and, and not having access to, to knowledge in that way outside of sports. And so the ability to allow for a different path than to embrace embrace it as it comes, I think you completely epitomize that. So thank you so much for sharing your time today. And I'm I'm really excited for the whole Team USA fan base to get to to hear this interview. I think everyone can learn a lot from it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your time, and yeah, hopefully I can make an impact, positive impact in one person's day. Then you know it's all worth it. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.